0: welcome to the rocks back pages podcast and the first episode of 2023 i'm barney hoskins and i'm online with my colleagues mark pringle Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us today all the way from L.A. is the truly legendary Pamela DeBars. Hi, Pamela.
1: Hi, Barney. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the sometime Miss Pamela needs no introduction from me. Her classic 1987 memoir, I'm With The Band, was a bestseller, and she's followed it up with several more books. She also has her own delightful podcast, Pamela debars pajama party which happens to be on pantheon the same podcast network as this one pamela we're going to talk to you (laughs) shout out to pantheon pamela we're going to talk in this episode about the all gold gto's and about lots of other things frank zappa lowell george alice cooper and of course the whole groupie phenomenon in your native los angeles we'll also hear clips from an audio interview with producer Pete asher and we will of course pay tribute to the great jeff beck it's actually a little known fact that Jeff, I think, actually performed on, played on, played some role on 1969's nine's Permanent Damage, the only album that GTO has ever released. So we can get, can we get straight into the story of that remarkable group of women, semi-assembled <laughs> by by Mister Zappa? Wow. How how did you, Pamela, intersect with Frank Zappa's sort of Laurel Canyon world in the first place?
1: Laurel Canyon was where everybody wanted to be because all the bands lived there. Love, Buffalo Springfield, The Doors, The Birds, you know, and I knew where every one of them lived. I was very young. You know, I was 16 when I got nuts about all these bands, local bands. I was a Beatle freak, of course, but then all of it, there were local bands. And the way it happened is very strange. A good friend of mine, Victor Hayden, who later became the Mascara Snake in his cousin's band... Captain Beefheart, <laughs> Magic Band, yeah. he took took me to meet his cousin in 1965 when I was still in high school, and so I met Don Van Vliet very early on, which changed my brain cells immediately, <laughs> and I went <laughs> on a whole other path. So I was in, in Hollywood. It, it took me from the Valley to Hollywood, and I started just carousing out in Hollywood, and I eventually met all kinds of like-minded girls who loved music and long-haired boys and we just started hanging out together at a a fellow's place his name was Vito he was a wild man artist dancer freak you know he epitomized he and his people epitomized freaks so we danced my girls and I danced with Vito and Carl Franzoni who called himself Captain F and we were just a, a bunch of freaky girls you know and so Frank Zappa moved from New York to Laurel Canyon and he became sort of like the prince, the crown prince of Laurel Canyon. He he was the weirdest person there and no one would have imagined at that time, but he was a total teetotaler and didn't take any drugs. And one of the girls, Miss Christine, was the Moon Zappa's governess. Moon was six months old when I met her. We're still very close today. So, we got invited up to Frank Zappa's house, all these crazy wild girls. And at that point, we were dancing with a few bands, Three Dog Night and Love and various bands that we, they'd invite us up on stage because we were really half-naked, wild, crazy teenage girls. <laughs> so that's how I met Frank Zappa. And we started spending a lot of time up there. I got very close with Gail Zappa. I always uh, adored the women around the men. They they were equally important to me because I wanted to be one of them. (laughs) And so we just spent a lot of time up at the cabin, log cabin. Frank Zappa rented this crazy cabin built in 1921 or something. A cowboy, Tom Mix built it, a movie cowboy. And the GTOs were formed in there. We were at that point called the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company. We called ourselves that because we danced all over the place with all kinds of bands. We started dancing with the mothers, of course, on stage with the mothers. So Frank got a label. He got his own label, uh, Bizarre Straight. And he thought we were so interesting and so clever and so funny and so amusing and so of the moment that he wanted to capture us on vinyl. So that's how that happened. He said... You guys, please write some songs about your life experiences. While I'm on the road with the mothers, I'll come back and we'll do a record. And it was just unbelievable. At the same time, he christened us girls together outrageously. He thought that was better than the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it was.
1: And we shortened it to the GTOs. And added, you know, overtly, organically, outwardly, uh, opinionatedly, whatever the O could stand for anything we wanted it to, and that's how we got all got together.
0: We have a review of Permanent Damage from International Times here. This was written by Miles, the legendary Barry Miles, who had the bookshop that John Lennon met Yoko in. Okay, and he was, but he was a writer also. Anyway, he reviewed Permanent Damage. He said, it is more truthful than 90% of the albums in your local record store. It is produced by Frank Zappa, and it tells it like it really is. And for most people, that's incredibly hard to take. It's a wonderful album. <laughs> 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 We've been listening to it the last couple of days. i say it sounds great. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an absolute hoot, both musically and, shall we say, culturally. I mean, it's very funny. There may be some things on it, is there anything on it that would sort of make you slightly, you know, given how long ago it is, it makes, it well, would make you feel slightly cringe, like the yes. cones. Yeah. The cones. Yes.
1: the cones is the only one, but it's uh, only because it's so close to the awful word coons, but it has nothing to do with that. It was the shape yeah. of their hairstyle it was like an yes. ice cream cone coming out of their foreheads. And that yes. that's the only, you know, bummer in it. And people would imagine that it was the wrong word. It's not. It's it's. It was the shape of it, and we admired them. It wasn't. You know, they weren't our type. We wanted long-haired rockers, but we admired them and their <laughs> persistence and all of that. And that's what that song is about. And it's funny. You know, we imitate
0: very. It we, is funny.
1: Paint them exactly what they would say to us. They called us Snow White. You know, <laughs> and they were trying to get with us, but it wasn't working. <laughs> 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 that's all. That's about, and the rest of yeah. it. No, I mean the the the, the Moke Monster review, you know, was very early talking about how men were were basically abusing people, abusing. them yeah. Early, early on, but at that time there was no recourse. There was no mm. to anything. You know, you just went, you just dealt with it. I mean, yeah. every, every person, every woman in my age has had many Me Too moments. Yeah, yeah, nothing yeah, new.
0: No, no, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, lots of people over the years have kind of said the GTOs were were so influential. There's, you know, you can trace a sort of line through all kinds of, you know, all-girl bands or entities, probably right up to the Spice Girls. You know, you you were like the original Spice
1: Girls. We were were the original all-girl freaky girl band. Yeah, there was a band. The only other band at the time of the girl was Fanny. And But they were yeah. more straightforward rock and roll girls, you know, with bell bottoms and stuff. We were crazy, maniac girls. We and, and part of it had to do with wanting to have Frank Zappa think we were great. You know, he he was right. so important to all of us that it was like, OK, we got to make him laugh. We got to make him love us, you know, <laughs> and it was nothing to do with sex with him ever. I mean, you know, Gail was someone we adored as well and but it was more about impressing him and he he wanted to capture these moments in time and that's how the gtos came about he really thought this was important stuff this teenage girl stuff at this time and he wanted to claim it own it put it out for for posterity really that's that's what he was interested in i think and the fun of it all I mean, we had a lot of fun i was
2: watching a clip of you talking earlier in the documentary about him where you said that he was, he would conduct you with a baton, which oh, is yeah. just, this yeah. <laughs> is a great image of Frank Zafferson conducting this I, wild yeah. record, but I, I, you I, know, can't. holding a, holding a baton.
1: Lowell George was a big part of our record because frankly, uh-huh. and, and he Lowell was second in command in the studio. This was before Frank realized what a pothead he was and fired him. <laughs> but we love yeah. Lowell too. He was. He was. He he kept some sort of normalcy, believe it or not, in the studio.
0: <laughs> He's never been accused of that before. Revisiting, I have a paintbrush that 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 track. I mean, it just it sounds like Little Feet before Little yes. Feet ever exactly. made a a exactly. record. It, I was astonished by that, and obviously his slide guitar playing yeah. on Permanent Damage is wonderful too.
1: Yes. People don't don't actually pay much attention to the musicality of that record, but there's some pretty good stuff on there. <laughs> there is
0: great music on there. I mean, all all the all the sort of you know the chatter between all of you yeah, is, yeah. is is yeah. brilliant it's really funny and wonderful satire and all of that but it is it has some great musical moments i would say i mean it's not, it's not so different in, it's you could almost compare it to we're only in it for the money in terms of the sort of variety of of things on the record and the conversation and so forth
1: well frank was making fun of stuff on we're only in it for the money we were not we didn't know we Okay, were a satire Well, not
0: even with Rodney we were
1: just living you know (laughs) and enjoying every second of it at that time I knew how important these moments were and and how I I would reflect on them for the rest of my life and how you know I was in the right place at the right time and all of that stuff
0: there's a piece that we've added also about Miss Christine that a guy called Eric Himmelsbach wrote in 2018 and she actually mentions the fact that Miss Christine was the original like nanny for Moon Unit, wasn't she? I believe but, Yes. But she, he talks to Alice Cooper and Alan, and he says that he used to come around and also help babysit Alice's kids.
1: <laughs> <It's> the, <laughs> idea Again, the whole band Chris, was Miss there Christine. all yeah. the time. The whole Beefart band was there all the time. Yeah, I remember once walking in, and the whole, entire Beefart band was sitting there. They were very unusual. They would sit there very calmly and stare into space. And the whole Alice Cooper band was there and a whole bunch of the mothers were there and a bunch of freaks too. The doors were always open there. And that's why when, when Gail became pregnant again with Dweezel, she said, I am not going to live like this. You have to <laughs> get me a house where people can't just walk in and, yeah. you know, <laughs> do whatever they want. So yeah, that's how that happened. Wonderful. Yeah. You also knew Graham
0: Parsons, didn't you? And of course, Christine's tune, which was the first Track on uh, the Gilded Palace of Scent was about Miss Christine. No, it wasn't. Oh, it
1: wasn't about Miss. No, Christine. even it wasn't about even Christine. Bob Dylan got that wrong on his show. Remember when he? Oh my gosh! Well, I'm in good company then. Yeah. <laughs> well, Miss, Miss Christine did not go out with any. You know, it was about a girl named Christine Hinton, who dated David Crosby. The Crosby. Yeah, and she was one of those girls who was a real. She she wanted to play guys against each other and different members of the burritos and birds and all that and they didn't like it then they wrote a song about a pretty rude song and i actually double dated when i was seeing brandon DeWilda, the actor who was very close with graham and had a lot to do with his country music you know love i was dating brandon and and we double dated with david and christine hinton i remember it very well it was a strange double date (laughs) but anyway she died soon after that
0: a, yeah, she was killed in a terrible so, car so, crash. So you like,
1: know who she is too, so that's who it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because
0: yeah. Crosby writes a lot about her in his autobiography, and it was oh. a very tragic moment oh, really? in his okay. life. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah.
1: I, I'm going to have so, to read that because everyone gets that wrong because Miss Christine was much more well-known at that time.
0: Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. wanted to so, to ask you all this time later how you look back, what perspective you now have on the whole groupie phenomenon and what that word means to you now and you know what it subsequently meant in the era of Rodney's disco and so <laughs> forth so I mean what's your what is your take on it now Pamela these these decades later?
1: Well it's changed a lot. <laughs> It has, you know, at the time I was never underage. First of all, let's just go there. Okay. Mm. I was never underage when I was seeing these rock stars, but in the early seventies, the girls got younger and younger. Rodney's English disco, you know, you could be any age and go in there. So these little baby girls, you know, started showing up. I was in my early twenties and they just, they, of course they were something brand new to these guys. Mm-hmm. Little, little little girls. You know, wow. Here they come. All these little babies in their high heels and their shorts and stuff. So of course they they wanted them there. So the girls and the girls wanted to be there. It's not like these guys were taking advantage of these girls. However, at that age, yes, it could be perceived that way. But unless you were there and saw how much these girls wanted to be with these guys and put themselves in every kind of situation so they could be with them and meet them and hang out with them, it's hard to understand how different it was, you know, how how that came about. And it was it was a short lived phenomenon, I think. Couldn't have happened in any other time frame. Or in
0: any other city, maybe.
1: Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Although I know, you know, I had girlfriends in New York. Michelle Overman, who's in my book, Let's Spend the Night Together. Patty Darnville. All these girls were, were, you know, like Michelle was with Steven Tyler when she was 15. And he was only like 19, you know. It's just just what was happening. It's the way it was back then. And no one seems to be able to understand that. And luckily, I had nothing to do with it. I was 19 when I finally got laid. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, thank God, I don't ever have to explain my way out of that stuff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean do you think that rock and roll will ever have its true sort of me too reckoning moment like the movie industry
1: well some some girls after steven tyler right now
0: yeah yes I was interesting to know what your memories of the reaction to i'm with the band when it came out it was a huge bestseller. It's a wonderful book. There's so much great stuff in it. How do you remember the response to it? You know, being on chat shows and, and oh, getting somewhat... I, I, yeah. I was
1: stunned by the reaction. I just, you know, you write something. It started because I did a couple interviews. I did an interview with Stephen Davis for Hammer of the Gods, and which was one of the very first big rock book. That and No One Here Gets Out Alive. Who Danny Sugarman was a good friend of mine. But this but Stephen Davis said, you know, wow, you know, you've got a book in here. You've got you you have your own book to write. So he was very influential in helping me make the decision to write it. I would thought about it my whole life because I'd kept diaries and and had amazing memories that I knew no one else had. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I finally decided to write it and, and it, I got many rejections. I saved them all. I saved all the rejections from publishers. And one of them said, I think it was Random House, this will never be a book. It might be be a article for Rolling Stone. It'll never be a book. So I saved it. And when I got on the bestseller list, I sent it to the guy. I cut it out and sent it to him.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's beautifully petty, <laughs> yeah. but, but you and JK Rowling, right?
1: <laughs> oh God, don't don't align me with her. I'm a very old
0: hearted okay, okay,
1: no, accepting soul. You know, we had the BTOs with us, always together outrageously. And that was a time mm. that was a time period where anything went. You know, it was we had the birth control pill. Boys and girls could do whatever they wanted with each other and everyone else. I mean, was, it was such a magical time. No wonder people are still clamoring to hear about it because yes. it was brief. And the music being made to reflect the lifestyle of all this or vice versa, you know, it', it impossible to replicate, even though I've, I've, I've been saying lately. You know, the biggest bands in the world are going to be cover bands in the future because Mm. there's no one as good. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. There's no one as innovative as Frank Zappa right now. Can you think of someone?
3: Jasper's looking sceptical over
2: there. (laughs) I mean, I I would disagree with that. But what I really love about I'm with the band, I'd never read it before, and I started reading it in the run-up to this, is that the positivity with which you talk about your own desires and just your, your enthusiasm for the situations that you're in, I mean, must have been in 1987 a totally revolutionary way to write about women's sexuality in a way that hadn't really been in open conversation before. I mean, now we're starting to talk more about that kind of thing in a more open way. But at that point, it must have just been like, you know, who was writing like that? No one. And I
1: got a lot of shit for it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I bet you did. Yeah, I'm sure you you did. But it's brilliant.
1: If you you read it back, it's very tame compared to some girls who decided to tell all long after I did. Yeah. And for me, it was all about love. I was looking for love. I wanted love, you know. That was my – I wanted that but i wanted it in this world. so yes i i, I wrote about my sexuality i guess Aeneas and then maybe were the the one before yeah, i was going to say but yeah. i mean no one during my time period was was would 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 do that especially in the 80s i think the 80s like i said 20 years earlier it was a whole different reality and that and even in the 80s it was shocking to people to read about stuff that happened 20 years earlier and now 50 years later, it's very different. It's very different. It's like a fantasy. It's like mythology. Jim Morrison mm-hmm. will always be that beautiful Adonis with the beads around his neck. And, of course, I saw him in the gutter. Yeah, yeah. A good fat guy with a beard in the gutter, you know. So, But, yeah. but <laughs> I've got some good stories about him in that book. i was just part i was in this world i was on the sunset strip every night of my life the whiskey go-go was my was my living room basically Mm. Mm. so i just saw it all and i wrote about it and i I kept the diaries and i was able to quote myself i was able to quote like oh led zeppelin's doing their encore i i'm in the i'm in the limo jimmy oh here's jimmy oh yeah i mean it was so. Amazing. It
2: Took me a beat to realize that those were actual diary extracts from oh. you know when you, that it's you know they're so archetypal diary <laughs> entries. It's, yes, it's wonderful. Yes,
1: every young girl can relate to to it even now. Of course, and 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 I didn't mean to say there's no great music being made now. I go see live music all the time, but that particular time frame produced so, something mm. something in the atmosphere. In that five six year period that allowed this all these geniuses to come through. It started, yeah. Elvis started it. I don't care what anyone says, and uh, it, it he opened these doors, and you know John Lennon walked through it. I mean that's just, it's just it just yeah, it can't be compared. I'm not comparing mm. it. Can't be compared, but because yeah. I you know I love the Struts. I love the Monoskin. I, there's a lot of stuff I like. But I'm glad I lived then. I'm glad I was a yep. young girl back then.
3: <laughs> yes, yes, I bet. Mm. I mean, the, the thing is is that music was so central to the entire culture
1: yes. in
3: a way that is impossible to be now. It's, right. it's too diverse, there's too much other stuff, you know. Yes. But I mean, you know, I was 12 in 1968, and I just wanted to be part of all of that. You know, it was, there was nothing else. There was literally nothing else. Yep, look up. Yeah, I know mm.
1: it was, it was, mm. it was, it permeated the whole world. Yeah, the Beatles, the Stones, Zepp, uh, you know, these people permeated the universe. It wasn't like small bits of stuff like it is now. I mean, it's just there are huge, and luckily, it's a lot of women, obviously, making yeah. a whole lot of noise right now. <laughs> but back then, it was just it had it, it was cultural, like you said, it was a. A movement, right? There's no movement right now. Mm. There's a lot of Mm. different variations on that theme. (laughs) Yeah, And a lot of it had to do with peace and love. And that's why people look (laughs) back at this like, you know, what was a love in like? It's impossible to describe. The doors, the birds, whoever, they would play them for free. You know, they they didn't wait around for the paycheck. It was not about that. It had so much to do with ah, acceptance of each other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it really was. Life mm, was a love in mm. for a while there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have written about the darker side of the kind of rock and roll dream, of course, and not all the GTOs, you know, have ended up in as good shape as you have. I mean, you you always had this very sunny, upbeat. Disposition, I think, and that comes across in pieces about the GTOs and so forth. A couple of the other pieces that were going to feature on the homepage are about Miss Christine and about about Mercy. I hadn't realized till I revisited this piece about Christine that I mentioned earlier by Eric Himmelsbach that it was actually Jonathan Richmond who 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 basically saw Christine sort of like lying on the floor and like came in. I think uh, one of the his fellow modern lovers was having a shower and Jonathan Richmond comes. There's something wrong with Christine. There's something not right, and she had obviously overdosed. I, I had I had no idea that that it was in that house in Massachusetts. And then the other piece is by our friend Chris Campion, who's an RBP writer, who's been on the podcast. I and mean, he wrote this really lovely piece about Mercy, Miss Mercy last year, which yes. is great. I think he wrote it for the LA Times. And fortunately, she, she did have a, a, a happy-ish ending to her life, didn't yes, she? Yes. Having been virtually homeless. And, yeah. And I, were you in touch with her?
1: Oh, my God. She was my best friend.
0: She was your best friend. She yeah. was on your podcast, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, a couple twice. Of times. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to have to listen to those. Oh, I just, my I noticed, God.
1: Uh, have you read her book?
0: No, I haven't. Oh and that's called God. Permanent Damage, right? Yes,
1: it's called Permanent Damage. She's the one who named our, our album. Yes. She, There's no one like her in this world. And yes, she had a rough time, but she doesn't look at her rough time of being homeless for seven years as a rough time. She always, I can't say enjoyed, but respected her life you know, respected no matter what she did with her life, she respected herself and, and what she'd been through. And boy, yes. what a character you, you've got to read her book and please. Okay. We'll do podcast. but she turned out fine. She was many, many years sober. She, yes. it came about because my mother was ill and she had just gotten sober, like literally two, three months before. And I needed help with my mom because she was living with me and I, I needed some help. And, and mercy always got along with her so mercy became her caretaker so to speak 3 days a week and turned her completely around because she needed to be, she had to be sober to do that and she kept sober and she stayed sober the whole time ever since
0: so i think chris says she got sober on thanksgiving day in 1998 <laughs> so she had many many yes. years yes, drug free did. which is really good to know just one quick footnote question. The featured writer on the homepage is is an LA kind of mainstay, Richard Cromolin, whose name you will know, wrote for many years for the of LA course. Times. Really? And we've run we've got this piece, uh, this review of the Hollywood street revival and trash dance <laughs> in the fall of seventy four at the Hollywood Palladium. Yes. And you're on the bill there. Were you were you in the in the GTO's in that at that gig?
1: I had just met Michael, the fellow I married, got the beautiful Yes,
0: Michael Devos, yeah, yeah, last great name.
1: man. The S is silent, by the way. It's DeBar. DeBar. Yeah. And he was performing. He had just gone solo. Silverhead, his band broke up, and he was going solo. And he was going to perform. So the GTOs got back together. We hadn't been – and it was really only Mercy, Cinderella, and me, and a couple other girls we brought up there with us. And we backed Michael. OK, we backed him up and we sang. I think, oh, God, Mr. Sandman, I think we sang <laughs> in a really terrible way. But we enjoyed it. I remember Mercy was on heroin that night and she she stumbled in late with a giant rainbow colored wig on. It was all askew and everything. So it was really quite a night. Yeah, I remember it very well.
0: Cromlin says it was a kind of wake for the Glitter Rock <laughs> era. And I love, that. again, only in Hollywood, right? But I wish I'd been there. The, the, dolls, the New York Dolls were headlining and Iggy Pop performed. Yeah, it sounds like fun.
1: It, it was wild. It was absolutely <laughs> wild. It was at the Palladium, the very first place I came to Hollywood. And that's where I met Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart, at the second annual teen fair. And he, he was so out of place. He was so, <laughs> He just, he didn't fit in how he got that gig. I don't know, 1965, but he, he, when Victor introduced us, he looked me up and down and said, you're a gas. I wish there were more people like you. And like, right? Really?
0: <laughs>
1: what is it about me? I was this high school kid. And for this giant burly, so much of the stuff I've been through, it's hard to describe, but for him to recognize that is something in me there, it just shifted my whole, it sent me on a whole other path.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. So Pamela, while all this was going on, there was a kind of another LA happening that you semi intersected with, but it's very different from the sort of Rodney's GTO's LA. I'm talking about the kind of laid back singer songwriter crowd exemplified by kind of Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and so forth. It just so happens that that next week sees the UK publication of producer Peter Asher's memoir, A Life in Music. So we decided to digitize an interview that I did with him in 2003. And given that his biggest success came with Linda Ronstadt, I thought it'd be interesting to look at sort of the parallels between her experience as a female musician particularly in LA, and your own take on what it meant to be a woman in that era, in that city. The audio quality isn't exceptional, but let's hear the first clip and maybe discuss that. I've
3: been cheated, been mistreated. When will I I be loved?
4: I mean, what's undoubtedly true is what they say, no, from people to know the woman who makes it possibly difficult, the man who makes it possibly to Yeah, that that was a yeah. damage. Linda's reputation for being difficult is ninety percent generated by just you know, knowing what you wanted and trying to get it. You know, she, I didn't find it difficult at all. No, and uh, probably because I listened to her. You uh, I respected her.
0: Well, she said I'm unwilling to hear her, She
4: said you know that you were the first man who treated her like an equal. Right. It's weird. I never think of myself as, you know, pre-feminist feminist. feminist, But it it, 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 it didn't didn't occur to me to do anything different. No. Well, so...
0: You know, I thought it's interesting, maybe for you to hear someone like Linda Ronstadt talking in that era and the particular the sort of struggle she had with with men domineering kind of producers and record executives and boyfriends, of course, you know, and you know I always did get the impression that that Peter was a very sympathetic kind of guy. What did you? think of all that music that was made, you know, the, 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 the Canyon sound, the singer songwriters, you know, did you, did you feel you were in a very sort of different LA sphere from those people? I mean, no, we, it was all one.
1: we were all in it was the all one Canyon thing together. Yeah. And I, I revered her. She was my favorite singer. I saw her play was she? many times at the Troubadour. I was always inspired by her and vice versa. She writes about me in her book. In a really positive, sweet way, you know, we'd we'd interact in the office. We we were, I guess she was managed by Herb Cohen or something because we were always together in the. I'd see her in the office, or and I always got to go to her gigs for free because of our connection, and I just loved it. I got I never paid for a gig probably my whole life. I mean, back then <laughs> <laughs> I just walked in, but anyway, I loved her. I loved her and I and I and I loved all oh, Crosby Stills and Nash. The first time oh God, the first time I heard Crosby Stills and Nash, free young, I was living with Brandon downstairs. David Crosby lived upstairs. And I'd visit with him sometimes. He never had clothes on. He was always naked in the house. He had big <laughs> bowls of Coke and pot everywhere. I mean, he was re- very accommodating. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> That's a word, for it. but one day I went up there looking for Brandon, and he said, "Here, I want to play you something." And he had this bunch of equipment there, and he turned it on, and played, played some amazing music. I'd never heard anything like it. And he said, "This is my new group." we're going to call it we're going to call ourselves the frozen noses and i I, I, (laughs) can't think
0: why even
1: then i thought that's not a very good name and it's it's a bust also so i thought well that's not cool but anyway the music was amazing and of course decided not to call it that but use the real names (laughs) for the music so i was I've often said I was the Forrest Gump of a lot of stuff because I was in situations that no one would believe. (laughs) So I wrote about it. And, you know, I still get many detractors. I still get people saying to me that you're making this up. A lot of people think I made a bunch of it up. Not true. It's all there. It's all in my diaries. And they should be in the Smithsonian or something. Not the yeah. rock and roll Hall of Fame because I'm I'm not a fan of that, but you know some their 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 history their history from a very important time frame, musically especially, but not just music. It was it was culturally, sexually, politically. I mean, it was all it was all there. It was this mm. the height. It was all came together in like sixty six to seventy four ish. Those are the mm. years that, that, that I think all that shit went down. And it started shifting after Manson and Altamont and stuff, but it was still intact. for A lot, a lot of people say, you know, that's mm. when it all ended, but that's not true. It, it kept going for a while. When the hard, hard drugs came on, like Coke especially, what a nightmare that stuff is. Mm. But, mm. you know, w- when we were on acid and smoking a lot of pot and looking for God in, in, in everything and each other, it was, uh, it was nothing like it.
2: I mean, some of it is just too outrageous to have been made up. So, I mean, how can anyone think that <laughs> if, you, if you were making it up, you'd have aimed a bit lower, I think. Yeah, yeah.
1: I get called a, a so... slut. I get called a slut on social media.
2: Oh, for I'm goodness. I'm a
1: 74-year-old uh... lady, right? Now I still get called a slut. <laughs> is that a compliment? I don't know. My age, maybe it is.
0: <laughs> mm, mm. Well, look, just to say a little more about the Peter Asher interview, I mean, revisiting it after two decades, it was pretty interesting to hear. You know, he's a very bright guy. Yes. Obviously, he's a fellow countryman of ours. He first went to America as one half of Peter and Gordon, had, you know, pop success in America, was on the Sunset Strip, probably the same time as you. Oh, panel. we crack. we Yeah, attracted. yeah. Okay, okay, but then he <laughs> and then he comes. He goes back to London, works for Apple. Obviously, Jane Asher was his sister. Jane yeah. was Paul McCartney's girlfriend. Anyway, and then he comes back to LA with James Taylor, who had been signed to, to Apple, and so he talks in this audio interview quite a lot about james taylor and making the you know the sweet baby james album which i think is a real seminal seminal sort of la album from the late 60s nine seventy. anyway i i really like that record i have to say you weren't allowed even to to say you like james taylor in the kind of punk here but i've come around to it now And so he talks about carol king and we and, and tapestry you've got a friend and all of that so it's it's an interesting Sort of British perspective, if you like, almost on that whole LA era. The singer songs. Another artist that he he produced was John David or JD Souther, who co-wrote more than a few of the Great Eagles songs, and who, of course, had relationships with more than a few female singers um, in, in <laughs> LA. Um, so. Yeah. Th- he, he, a he was a real he was a real heartbreaker and lady yes. killer, I think. He um, was a ladies. A ladies. I only
1: interacted with him through with Chris Hillman when I
0: was saw, saw oh, the okay. of course, the Hillman Fury, yeah. Because yeah. I think Chris was your first sort of real love, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. So I'd forgotten that you had that connection too. Well, let's hear the second clip from the Peter Asher audio where he talks about JD.
2: John
4: Seriously. David had with everything. Yeah. There is not a girl singer who ever set foot in Los Angeles <laughs> and in that era. <laughs> I mean, John David did not have
0: <laughs> That's the impression I get. No, it's true. It's yeah. True. I'm broke. It's a, fact, it's a very <laughs> funny
4: story that I it, you'd have to get from one of to tell. There was a point in time when Jody and Linda met on the doorstep, one leaving, one arriving, and realized what was going on.
0: That had to happen at some point. That's us Exactly. <laughs> you could do a peak frame family tree
3: just of exactly.
1: their relationship.
0: Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I love that idea of you know which who was leaving, who was arriving. Yeah, Peter didn't say, and maybe doesn't know. Anyway, maybe it was Joni leaving and Linda arriving, or the other way around. But it's it's a great moment in sort of (laughs) LA Canyon history,
1: very Laurel Canyon. You know, I do these rock and roll tours. I'm with the band Rock and Roll Tours, where I take people around in a big band and show them all the sites where all this stuff happened, where the GTOs did their record, where where they where the Zappas moved to, you know, where all the birds lived, where love lived, and. And and I also go by Joni Mitchell's house because everyone wants to know where that, you know. Our house is a very, very, very fine house where that is. <laughs> our
4: house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. Life used to be so
1: apparently she still owns that house and, and just leases it. But yeah, so that's that's definitely part of my thing. I definitely have to go by there because everyone wants to know where it was. It was right above where Frank Zappa lived.
0: Does the bus go up to um Appian Way where Carol King's house
1: was? No, I don't go up there. I haven't had much call. Too high. Too high. No, up. I haven't had much call for Carol King people in my van. Oh. Uh, I
0: okay.
1: admire <laughs> I admire all the women who who came through there. I mean, it wasn't easy for them.
0: No, absolutely. Well, listen, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you about that. That LA era, as I mentioned at the beginning, Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart showed up during the permanent damage sessions. If I've got that correct, I think you band. said that somewhere. The, the whole band. band, the whole Jeff Beck group, yep, showed up, which is an amazing. Well, it's an amazing and um, I guess kind of you know poignant coincidence, given that we we learned late yesterday that that Jeff Beck had died very suddenly after contracting con- – uh, he'd gone meningitis, bacterial meningitis. Yeah. So, it's, it's, I mean, he was 78, which is, you know, I mean, it's not young, but no one imagined he was about to, to leave us. It. So, it's, I mean, Mark, I'm going to yeah. ask you what just – what your first memory of hearing or being aware of Jeff Beck, you know, as, as a player, as a, as a rock and roll, as a pop star. Was, well, I were...
3: mean, they are two different things. I mean, yeah. there's, a
0: pop, there's a pop star. There's kind of, that, I have to
3: say ghastly, high Ho Silver Lining, which is a, <laughs> a song that I'd condemn, you know, happily. I guess it was kind of a like blow by blow around there where I really started hearing. Not the art him. birds, not the art not, No, but it's too, no. They, were too, they were before my time. That's, I know it's ridiculous. Like, you know, just, you know, when you're that age, if it's three years before your time, it's you, you know, it's dead. Then I sort I I just love his playing. I don't necessarily love the music he's playing in terms of its sort of general format. I mean, I've got a fairly low tolerance of kind of fusak, you know, kind of jazz funk fusion sort of stuff, you know. But he is an extraordinary player. I mean, I'm you know, Jimi Hendrix is my great god as a mm. guitar player. And Beck's like the next best thing, the guy who could really tell stories on the guitar. And I love that two thousand and seven, that run of gigs he did at Ronnie Scott's. Mm. Which you know, you can you can hear and see the, the albums released the videos the, the DVDs out there. And he's just extraordinary. The other thing that was fantastic about him is that he actively employed women musicians. Yeah. Fabulous. I mean, that, that bass player, uh, Tal... Wilkenfeld. Wilkenfeld. Yeah, yeah. Just ast- astonishing. And, and, you know, he comes from that sort of like macho kind of rock and roll culture. And for him to absolutely throw the doors open of his band to women musicians, mm. I thought was, that was fantastic. So it didn't matter the context. His playing was always astonishing, regardless mm. of the context. I mean, Barney, you really like his version of Ness and Dormer, don't you?
0: Yeah. I saw him play of that Nelson and Dorma live at this open air festival in Surrey once. And I have to say, uh, you know, part of me just thought this is just so naff and absurd. Yeah. Yeah. But five, six minutes later, I had tears streaming down my face. I mean, it was just sort of, it was so beautiful. It was, my heart was just kind of bursting with the beauty of his playing. I mean, yeah. yeah, And I, I remember when we were first starting
3: Rock's Back Pages, so 20 years ago, you, you're in Clapham Common Westside, you playing Brush With The Blues, and both of us going, with this the blues. is just fantastic. Oh God, yeah. I mean, the only thing is he used to play with his fingers. He didn't use a pick for most, certainly for his latter period. And that, his touch was just, you know, beyond So it's human,
0: really. So I yeah. mean, just the humanity yeah. of the guy. Pamela, do you remember when you first were aware of of Jeff? I guess it would have been in the yard, but did you see them in kind of the mid '60s?
1: No, I didn't meet Jeff or know much about him until the Jeff Beck Group. Uh, right. I, you know, the they came to town. We were always wanting to be with them. whoever British band came to town. None of
0: any us, British band would do. Yeah, really, yeah pretty, right? much,
1: <laughs> pretty much. But but none of us got with them. Sexually, or anything, they people misconstrue the term groupie because a lot of times we just wanted to spend time with these people, hang out, know them, share stuff. And you know, we took them all shopping, we took them to our favorite vintage store, the only vintage clothing store in LA at the time with Glass Farmhouse. Took the whole band there and they got decked out on stuff. I remember Rod bought probably his first feather boa there. I mean, it was a wow. (laughs) That's great. And, and we'd, we'd sat at the Chateau Marmont with him all afternoon watching soccer. It was that kind of thing. And, (laughs) And they, we all got along really well and they just, they wanted to play on our record. Frank asked them, I guess Jeff was a big fan of Frank's and vice versa. And Frank asked them to be on the record and they came down, spent a whole day there with us in the studio and it was it was so thrilling, yeah. So it was hard yeah. to express how thrilling it was for us all. And he played on three songs. His, his I think his the Eureka Springs garbage lady is he's got some really good stuff. On.
0: <laughs> okay, so he's on. I was going to ask you what it's not immediately obvious where where Beck is playing on the record. Oh, I, I think wasn't it sure is. How much stuff? I think. You it's, think it's, <laughs> I have to go. I have to go yeah. listen a little more closely. It's very
1: <laughs> obvious what he's playing.
0: Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Frank okay. turned him
1: way up. And Rod Stewart was such a, you know, he wasn't getting enough attention. We called him Rodney Rooster then because his hair stuck straight up. Yes, Rodney is what we called him, but he he disappeared <laughs> at one point because he wasn't getting enough attention, and we had to go out looking for him in the middle of Glendale, you know, suburb, and finally found him <clears> sitting on the steps of a school, sulking, and you know we had to bring him back and get him on a song, right? So he sings on Mercy's song, Mercy's crazy song at the end of the of the album, and you can hear him just screaming, "I shot sh- treatment, oh let me go." Shock treatment—the wow. name of that song. It's very mercy.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go and listen to the record again with slightly better headphones. I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're marking Jeff Beck's passing, and i mean, I'm really, I do feel, you know, really, really sad actually. Yeah. But we've we've got some great stuff on Jeff Beck, including an audio interview that a guy called Steve Newton did in 2001. So you'll be able to hear Jeff talking to him. Um, it's a phone interview, but it's 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 interesting. And there's three interviews: one from when Jeff was a Yardbird. Actually, from KRLA beat, so wow. it's 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 got that kind of LA context. I, I think the Yardbirds must have been, yeah, exactly. So he's 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 talking about being a Yardbird. There's um actually an interview that Alan Light, former Vibe editor, sent me this morning, which has got great quotes about how Stevie Wonder's superstition came together, which is which is just great. And also the wonderful Kate Mossman, who was a guest on our podcast last year wrote a fabulous profile of jeff in 2016 for the new statesman and i'm just going to quote this because it sort of speaks to what we were saying earlier just about the unique sound of jeff's playing much of what jeff has done with his instrument resulted from a kind of musical mechanics a private process of tinkering test driving and refinement years ago while listening to bulgarian choral music presumably because he couldn't bear to listen to guitars he started playing a tune with his tremolo pulling the whammy bar high off the body he divined notes from an invisible scale in midair. the ghost voice more like a theremin than a strat appears on the 1989 song where were you which i think is also one of the most yeah yeah is supernaturally beautiful things Jeff ever ever did. And I just think that's that's just a an interesting thing to learn from Kate's fabulous piece actually. I mean she's clearly a fan. you really expect to read a long piece about Jeff back in the New Statesman. But there it is. <laughs> its the title is The 7 Million Pound Fingers: How Jeff oh. Beck Became a Guitar Hero by Saying No. It's a great piece. It's a wonderful piece. And, I mean, I, I, you know, people always said that that he was the inspiration for Nigel Tufnell, and one can kind of <laughs> see that. <laughs> he is quite – the Tufnell character is quite Beckish, but it's almost, it's just another thing that made made me love Jeff Beck, you know. And, uh, I mean, he – I agree with you, Mark. I think next to Hendrix, he's the most extraordinary electric guitar player yeah. that rock, rock has ever produced. So, farewell. You guys, have any any pieces you want to just briefly mention before we wrap up? Actually, really, just one piece I particularly like to mention, which
3: is, well, I'd like to mention as an aside, we've got our first Ethel Merman piece on the site, which, <laughs> which has given me great pleasure. But this is Bonnie ray interviewed by Judith Sims, Rolling Stone, November seventy two, about going to Woodstock to record uh, "Taking My Time." I think I could be wrong about which album it was, and she says, "In June, there aren't many places that are pleasant, so I thought Woodstock, out in the country, right." Dramatic pause. Sly smile. It rained every day. My house had frogs and salamanders, grimaced. (laughs) Freezing. No heat. I got sick. And Woodstock, for all its musical reputations, no place for a girl who likes to have her fun. The town's real incestuous. The old ladies dress up in low-cut slinky dresses and paint their eyes and sit around in the one restaurant, bored stiff because their old men are never there. They're either on the road or in a studio or driving down the main street, picking up 15-year-old girls and heading out to the woods. Real decadence. The whole town's on the nod. Guys sit at the traffic lights waiting for the streets to turn green. I had to go back to New York City to get healthy. I just love that. I think that's fantastic. That
0: is so funny. I mean, it's basically <laughs> the, the sunset strip with pine trees and the <laughs> snow, isn't it? Um, <laughs> just quickly as an aside, Pamela, is it, is it true that Miss Christine went up to Woodstock with Todd Rundgren <laughs> and... Also, like, had a fling with Albert Grossman. Yes. I'm very curious. That, that is true. true. <laughs> All of that is true. Yeah, she, that is extraordinary. Yes,
1: I remember meeting Albert Grossman at the Whiskey A Go-Go with her and thinking, what? wow, she's really going in different directions here. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> but thanks for confirming. We
1: always respected each other what, what we each other did. That was the thing about women back then. You know, we, we, we understood each other. And if we, if we didn't even, that was okay. Like if she wanted to be with Albert Grossman, I didn't, there was no judgment between any of us.
0: Mm -hmm. I just want to quote from, from actually from another Judith Sims piece quickly, because I noticed it, Mark, you added this, I guess, sometime in the last couple of weeks. It's an interview from 1973 that Judith did with Carol Kay, the great session bass player. It seems to kind of chime in with the general theme of this episode. She says, uh, once you get past the woman's role, you've got it made. If you can forget you're a woman and think of yourself as a person, it comes off better. And I I guess she's talking as a female session player surrounded mainly by by male session musicians
3: in the same piece she talks about sort of you know the few times where she'd lead a session how weird it was as a woman to lead a session and she had to be like a mother with these these boys you know right and how she she would say i would say you know i'd say shit just to make guys feel comfortable (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> That's all it took.
0: That's all Jasper, it took. have you got any pieces you want to tell? Sure, us about yeah, it? I'll just yeah. mention
2: a couple of things. One of them yeah. actually kind of dovetails with what, sort of the same thing as what you, the piece you just talked about, which is an interesting piece by Francis Morgan in The Wire. It's called Women's March. It's from May 2014, mm-hmm. and they're looking at how compiling by gender can either be good and positive and and productive. As a way of kind of positively changing people 's perceptions of any given genre, but can also can also reduce sonic horizons and it 's just a it 's a quite an academic piece, as you might expect from the wire but it it 's really worth reading where Francis Morgan is arguing about you know how do you compile a compilation of women 's music without ghettoizing women by doing that, and I think that 's fascinating. And then the other thing is a review, live review of The Comet Is Coming by Ben Myers in Mojo in March 2017. And The Comet is Coming, I mean earlier we sort of touched on who's doing interesting inventive music nowadays. I would say very firmly, Shabaka Hutchins and The Comet Is Coming. Just an amazing, amazing group. And Ben Myers writes, though the trio's appearance on the Mercury Music Prize list prompted the obligatory token jazz entry grumblings, this sound is a million interplanetary miles away from the measured jazz of scholars. This is future-forward jazz, fixed with a charge and fuse then detonated, a spectral shimmering display of pyrotechnics, bong-bubbling dub of journey through the asteroid belt to banging acid house and global hypercolor afropunk via a limb-flailing drum lead dance off which i think is a is a fantastic description of a an incredible
0: band they're
1: wonderful <laughs> writing it makes me want to hear the band
0: <laughs> yeah i think you'd like them. i think yeah. you'd like them pamela they're um, astonishingly good actually <laughs> they right, really are right well thank you so much for that jasper that brings us to the end of the episode and it remains only for me to thank you so much for joining us today pamela it's a real joy to hear you and Go back in time through all those amazing memories. We will be back in two weeks with Gary Kemp, former Spandau Ballet Man. Do visit Rocksback Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and over 800 audio interviews are also there. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. If not, maybe suggest you take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And it's bye from me and bye from you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for
1: having me. I really enjoyed it.
2: That concludes episode 144 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Pamela DeBar. Visit her website at pameladebarofficial.com for details of her podcast, books, and more. The host of Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocksback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon podcast network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.